Welcome to Whiskey in the Arts podcast, a collaborative exploration of creation and perception, with your hosts, Kurt Protzman and Dan Kroll. Part two of our conversation with Ian Moore on Whiskey in the Arts podcast. Well, I remember when Luminaria came out, and you know, it was a it it was a big shift. I love mm-hmm. the songs on that album, and the, and the one after that. And let, let me ask you: You were mentioning songwriting. You've had a songwriters workshop for a number of years, uh-huh. and maybe it's coincidence, but maybe it won't be. Every single person we've had on this podcast loves to teach. Oh, they yeah. want to pass things on. Uh, Kevin Leon from St. Paul and the Broken Bones, Matt Wallace, the tenor sax player, uh, 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 Byron Wu with his, you know, more of a app-based, yeah. uh, you know, online piano teaching that, that, that he does. But it's, I don't know if Dan's concept is just resonating with people that want to pass it on, but you've certainly been doing that for a long time with your workshop. Well, that started, uh, the funny thing about a lot of uh, really deep things is the honest story of it was was born in necessity, right? I, uh, I had a tour fall through. I, uh, as, as somebody, I pride myself on taking care of my family. So I was working on a construction crew just for a couple of weeks just to make enough money to, to pay my bills. One of my good friends, Jody, uh, I called her and, sh- and she's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm just cleaning up after. Her. She's like, why are you doing that? I'm like, well, my tour fell apart. I, I don't know. Don't, I'm, I don't have any income. I don't, there's, I, I, I don't have a B. I can't go, oh, I'm not doing this. I'm going to go do this. And she goes, you're going to hurt your hands. What are you doing? <laughs> and so she goes, and she literally took it upon herself um, to kind of put this workshop. She's like, you know, you're a great teacher. And I'm like, uh, I don't think so. I, my wife's a teacher. And I always look at her as she's the teacher. And and so anyhow, I uh, so we put this workshop together, which honestly is at that point just to try to make some money so I'm not broke. And then I get in front of people and I have all this stuff because, of course, I don't want to look like an idiot. So I, I prepared. And then I start talking and this other thing thing comes out of me that I'm like, I didn't even know. I mean, I had this whole thing. And then I immediately, this is really interesting that the first night, I'm never going to forget this for the rest of my life. All these people are looking at me and I've got this real cool kind of hip, you know, monologue I'm going to do. And I just started talking about vulnerability. It wasn't anywhere on the page. And um, it was weird. It was like, it was a truth that was so deep because ultimately what 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 well what life is about but what art is definitely about is vulnerability and you know when you when you are able to get out of the way and show yourself you every single one of us becomes a dimension bigger and what i noticed immediately as i was looking there is everybody was terrified and they were terrified because they felt vulnerable and when you see any artist, when you see anybody and they just take it off and they deliver it, you go, yes, hallelujah, because it's opened up this thing inside of yourself. And I realized that in teaching, I was going, this is my, this is what I need to, this is me, this is what I'm working on, this is what I need to work on. So, you know, that, you know, the classic thing that the teacher's the eternal student, I mean, I learned from doing these workshops. Uh, the last year and a half of teaching guitar, I never even knew what the hell I did on the guitar until I had to teach somebody else. I'm like, oh, what do I yeah. actually think about this? Oh, mm. this is what I think. So now when I'm playing, I, I feel like it's given me an insight actually onto who who I am. So I've I'm really and it's and not to mention that every single person that I've been doing lessons with is now a friend of mine like a real friend because you can't not become friends when you're working that intimately. And if we're living to love and be loved, to see and be seen, wow. You know what I mean? So when you teach, when, you, when you're in front of a, right. a group of people, if you're willing to be open to what you really think, the, the words and the teaching are almost secondary to the fact of like, I'm going to show myself and me showing yourself, you're going to show yourself and we are going to see who we really are. And that is a really, really great way to live. It feels and sounds like a microcosm of the of the process of 
writing music and then having it be consumed um because you're you're sharing a bit of yourself and i you were talking a bit before about uh about the tune today and i and i ran into a quote i was reading uh, just randomly this morning i was reading a uh an interview in the guardian with uh with jackson brown uh Mm -hmm. and the interviewer had asked him about the, uh, the the meaning of some of the lyrics in one of the tunes on his on his new album and he even he said i hate to disclose stuff about the personal part of the song because songs are about the listener but it's also that whole process seems to be a, a revealing of one's vulnerabilities uh to and just laying them out there on the table it's really interesting to me that you found that same that that same arc in the process of teaching uh, that it sounds like is, is a natural element of your of your writing. It's a it's a well it's a really rewarding thing, and I mean it's what you're doing when uh, well it's what I've been doing every time. I guess I've always been trying to teach. You know, I I want to connect with people. I mean, I remember being eighteen, nineteen, and not even really quite knowing what my voice was as a songwriter yet. And at that point, I was doing a lot of. Um, uh, blues covers and kind of R&B, a little bit of garage stuff. And, um, you know, but I was looking to kind of show myself. And I remember the best nights were always when I felt that connection. You're, you're looking for a connection. And Jackson's right. I mean, if you um, if you are too didactic, and this is one of the things I, I talk to people all the time with writing, because you want to leave room for the listener to find themselves. You know, if, if you try to spell everything out too much and you're looking for, you know, um, if you're looking for too much, you, you become, it's, I don't know, it's like you've, you're not giving them space to actually be part of the conversation. And I think we started this whole thing off talking about the nature of the receiving versus the, the giving. Like, can't tell you how many times I've, I've told my wife something that I thought was really, really clear. And then when she says it back to me, it's completely different than what I thought I was saying. And I and and then therefore is the nature of relationships, right? You you're you can right. <laughs> you can you can you can do all you can do is try to be the best version of yourself and try to communicate what you need and hope that in that communication, I mean that that you're being heard. I mean you know, I've had a lot of friction when I thought I was being very humble and very honest and then people took it as arrogance. And I've had other times where I was just being a total dipshit and people took it as, as you know, deep prayer or something, you know, I mean, I'm just putting it out there. And, right. you know, and, and I, I mean, that's the funny, you know, people say it all the time, like they write, they toil over this song and then they have this other shit song that they barely put two minutes in that they tossed off and somebody thought it was kind of good so they put it on the record and everybody it's their favorite song forever right right the it's uh it's an interesting arc to me that you have you've found these points of resonance outside of your your main area of focus and uh, kurt brought the 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 thing that you're doing with smash to my attention the the healthcare for musicians uh, program that you that you that you spearhead is that is that another function? Did that come about as an effort for, you know by you to be the best version of yourself, or was there something? Was there a specific thing that drew you to that cause? I outside of being a musician and knowing loads of them don't have health insurance. Yeah. Why, how did that come into? How did that come to be? Well, I, I uh, well, first of all, I needed <laughs> the same thing, same way the uh, the workshop came into being. <laughs> uh, Jolene was switching jobs, and she said, "You know, your your health insurance is really expensive. Why don't you try to get something through Ham in Austin because you tour out of Austin?" So I called my friend Renee up at who runs Ham in Austin, which is a great organization that that serves I think three thousand Austin musicians. I said, "Renee." can I get on the hand plan? And she said, you know, I mean, if you really want me to, I could try to make it work, but you don't live here. Why don't you look in Seattle? I'm sure there's something up there. And so I looked around and there were no services. And then I started to realize that um, this is really common in the United States. We're going through, we're going through a changing time. We're going through a time where for a lot of art, and I include rock and roll and pop culture in this kind of discussion, um, 
we're behind the countries like in Europe and Asia where they really honor the the presence and healing um, and inspiring component of art. We're kind of in this, we're still in the, the consumption mode of like rock and roll sells beer and, you know, da-da-da-da-da and all that kind of stuff. But what's happening is as cost becomes more expensive and cities become more expensive and the very cities that music makes uh, popular for tech culture because the tech people want to live in they want to live in the hot city they want to live where there's a nightlife and and all of that stuff is is part and parcel it all works together um, musicians are being pushed out musicians are dying musicians are um, and I was seeing it with my friends these people that were a few years older than me were dying or having heart attacks or diabetes and just these terrible things and I just realized, like, wow, here's Seattle, like the Emerald City, Microsoft, Amazon, all this, Paul Allen, all this enormous wealth. And then there was a study that came out, and the per capita um, computer-based uh, jobs were the highest uh, in the country. The um, music-oriented jobs were the lowest in the country. And it was just like a... Wow. <laughs> And it, yeah. I was I was pissed off because I almost I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I didn't want to have to do this. I wanted to just sit at home and write songs and play guitar, but nobody else had done it, and so I did it. And um, it's hard. It takes it takes a lot of my time and a lot of my energy. Um, there's not. I gain a lot spiritually because I know I'm doing something that's really important. I know it's beyond me. And um, I like that component of it on, an, on a personal uh, reward level. But a lot of people don't even know that I started it. I mean, to be honest, like, and it's not, I'm not out there. The weird thing about nonprofits, there's a bunch of bullshit around it. It's really often a for-profit concept. And when you're really trying to do something to help people, it is a, it's challenging, but it's, it's, um, it's needed. It's needed. We need these things. Seattle needs it. Like if you guys came up here and you're like, "Hey Ian, take me around, show me what's happening." You know, you would have your eyes would be opened. You would be like, "Wow, I can't believe that this city is taking for granted all of these assets." Which is um so it's uh what am I saying? I'm saying that I I'm I'm almost begrudgingly doing it because it needs to be done. Sure. Well, that's, I mean, uh, we were talking before this, when we were looking at, you know, your music and, and teaching and, you know, this is community and, uh, yeah. I, I don't, it's only because I recently ran across this quote, it, it makes a little fun, but if you found it, I think you'd like it, which is it's an interview with John Doe of X and he's talking about all kinds of West Coast uh, punk musicians, and he's talking about Carlos Guitarlos. Uh, you know, right? Uh, and I don't know if that's the reference in the Van Halen song, but anyway, um, he was in terrible, uh, right? Because it was uh, Billy, uh, no, um, anyway, whatever his band was. And he was in poor health. Yeah. He was talking about other people in poor health. And the interviewer was like, well, how do you explain Fleetwood Mac? How do you explain the Eagles? How do you explain these long standing? And John Doe says, Better health care, you know. Yeah. Better, better health care. Yeah, John. John. Uh, yeah, it's sad. John. John's a really good, a, a good friend of mine. He lives in Austin now, and um, it's cool to get to know him and understand the aesthetics that came out of that time and how he see. We 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 agree. We don't see things exactly the same way, but the thing that's really cool is he has that very. Um, it's that you know. It's a it's a very. Um, um, hard-fought romantic concept of how things should be and um and he's really you know, about you know about that that keeping those traditions alive which is i totally agree with i think that's i think he and i really share that same thing from slightly different angles i think i ran into x when i was a teenager not long after discovering the ramones through a friend Some, something else we've talked about is getting introduced to things like you know right. uh um and I think back to X, absolutely one of my favorite bands. I mean, the reason somebody's 12-year-old knows a Beatles song is melody and harmony, and they applied that to punk. I don't know any other punk band that's got harmony, and that's just one of the things that makes them work so great. Uh, yeah. That's cool that you know them. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had a lot. I mean, when I was a kid, 
if you were a boy in my world, you wanted to be John Doe, and if you were a girl, you wanted to be Exine. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty. Yeah. It was pretty <laughs> right binary on. in Austin when I was 13, 14 years old. And it's cool because I've gotten to, I've gotten to meet a lot of a lot of the people that I grew up with because ultimately if you do it long enough, you kind of end up in the same gumbo pot. You know, well, it, it, it it does bring up that you're you know again happy early birthday, but you're right in our demographic for this thingy, and we've talked about it. This is for uh, whether we like it or not, the target audience seems to be men solidly in their 50s but the departure here it leaves off there because you're supposed to have a lot of gray hair and a beard with a lot of gray hair so that's where it departs dramatically with ian but otherwise he's right in the club can't can't grow a beard i don't know the gray the gray i don't know we'll see no but i mean i you know it's it's an interesting thing i mean i've been talking about this a lot in the last few months um one of the things that I'm really interested in and uh, makes me, again, a, a Dylan fan is I don't want to pretend to be something I'm not. I don't want to try to and, – and I get frustrated uh, often with the United States and the West about this is that, you know, we have this weird obsession with listening to the thoughts of 19- and 20-year-olds. And that's hmm. kind of an unusual thing. I mean, the rest of the world doesn't – I mean, I get the teeny bopper thing, but the rest of the world, you know – I'm really proud of what I did as a young man. I also feel like when I look at the people that I idolize, I'm just entering this other phase. I mean, I don't have the ability to stay up all night and play a morning show and be fine. I get that. So, you know, my knees hurt when I hike, but uh, I get all that stuff. But what I do have is I have the reflection of a life of living. And um, I know um, I have a lot deeper thoughts. It's much more philosophical than I was. Um, my songwriting's evolved. Even um, I'm starting to find my voice, I think, with, with this new, you know, I put out a bunch of records in a short period of time. Um, I'm starting to see that I have a different way that I want to say things. I'm really interested in kind of the concept that we talked about a little bit before, that thing that uh, I think a lot of great songwriters do where you leave a little bit more room where these songs are not quite so personal to me, but they're still my songs. But um, right. I like the idea of that. And those are things that I've learned through time. And so when a young man or a woman looks at an older man or woman's life or their artistic output, maybe it seems old to them. I, I uh, most of um, when I was 20, all my friends were my age. All my idols were my age. I mean, buddy guy was my idol. Cormac McCarthy was my idol. Bob Dylan was my idol. Towns and Guy were my idols. Um, you know, even the people that were kind of younger, Jimmy and Stevie Vaughan and Denny Freeman, they were still 25 years older than me. So um, those are the things that I was interested in as a young man. And, um, you know, I, I find, I still find inspiration in youth. I love the virility and almost that that kind of like, like I look, I told you at the very top of the the thing, my eighteen year old's about to go to Mexico and he doesn't even have a bag packed. You know, I love, I right. love the, just the just <laughs> right. the just the foolishness of youth. It's there's it's beautiful and it is compelling, and I'll never lose my enjoyment of that. But really, when I look for narratives, when I look for stories, I'm not interested in Taylor Swift's thoughts. Honestly, I'm glad she's there for young women, but I'm interested in people that have lived. I want to hear. I talk to people. My dad's friends that are still alive, I talk to them on the phone, and I feel like that's what gets me going is these these deeper thoughts. So mm -hmm. so the demographic, I'm in. <laughs> you know, uh, ta uh, one of my absolute favorites who did some incredible live stream, like he was sitting in your living room, he kind of broke down that fourth wall, was Todd Snyder through the pandemic, yep. and he just sat there and he played songs and he talked, and he somehow did it. Without an audience, well, I think, I, I don't know how, anyway, but he's got that song called in, uh, Stuck on the Corner, and he yeah. sings about his um, sings about his son, his son. He says, he is, he is as unimpressed with the uh, plaques in my cubicle as I am secretly Im impressed with his ability to be completely irresponsible. <laughs> <laughs> Todd, is a, Todd is a great artist that is, is probably... You know, going to be one of those people from this generation that really, you know, because of the route he's taken, it's a long play. I mean, Todd's been doing this same thing. Yeah. I remember playing shows with Todd when we were both in our mid-20s, 
And and it's interesting because he's really no, I mean, he's evolved a little bit, but he's no different. You know what I mean? Like Todd's just more himself. Yeah. And it's really been an inspiration for me because, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I'm a, even though it's funny, I don't listen to a ton of Todd, Todd Snyder songs. I'm, he's, he's a big influence to me because I'm just trying to get to the core. I mean, what do we have other than who we really are? I mean, what else do we have? I mean, you could be David Bowie, which is awesome and kind of once generational talent where you put on a series of different costumes to reflect humanity. But for the rest of us, it's really just refining and distilling down the vision of the same thing we thought our whole life. He, he, uh, he distills things using uh, humor and poignancy at the same time and kind of the same way John Prine did, you know, really sneaks yep. up on you. Yep. Um, yep. It really sneaks up on you. When I listen to your stuff, what I thought was interesting, Dan's observation about the vocals right in the middle is, and I think I get this right, I think most everything is pretty much first person. So you're, you're, you know, you're right there. And when you're about talking about getting older and appreciating things, um, when I think about today, there's no way, I can't believe you wrote it when you were y- younger, because I hear it Me differently either. now, older, <laughs> and say, that guy, that guy in his funeral is at peace. Because he's, he's, everything's not perfect, but he's seen more and he understands more. And his life is good today. Uh, I was a little overwhelmed with it this last couple of weeks uh, because it snuck up on its meaning. I don't know how I took it before. I might have taken it as some license or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, you yeah, get, you know, you get, to to. you get what you need. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about music and art is that you get what you need and you, you've, you see things in different ways. And I mean, that's, you know, when somebody likes or doesn't like something that I do, it's like, well, it's not for you, man. There's don't take it personally. I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to do my best to get out of the way and, and put beauty down. I mean, I don't fucking know if I'm doing something great or it's terrible. I have no idea. I'm just trying, I'm trying my best to distill down what I feel in my heart and you have to take chances. And, you know, it's really interesting. There's all kinds of different artists. Um, I'm obviously an artist that um, I put it down to being half Jewish, that I'm constantly wandering. That's my theory. You know, I think that the Jewish people, you know, once they finally settle down, the the nature of that manifestation in their spirit made them intellectually constantly moving around. So, like, <clears throat> for instance, we know, when I had those first two records and I was getting a pretty good platform in terms of building a, a maybe a castle is what people wanted i didn't understand that because I, I that's not my that's not my lineage my lineage is to okay i built half of a castle that's cool let's see what's over here and so my natural mm-hmm. thing is <laughs> to wander around and build little bits of civilization if you look at my discography you'll see that i have these things and they kind of emanate and start to build as soon as they get to a certain point I get weirded out. You know, it's not on purpose. I, I actually wish I could stay there longer. But it's just the nature of, it's the wandering through the wilderness where you find all these gems. And then these people come along. And um, I mean, there's so many uh, examples. Uh, my friend who just passed away during the pandemic, uh, Matt Harris, was my collaborator on about two or three records. And I would have never met him. I would have never stumbled upon him had I not left these societies that I built, you know, and been alone by myself, and it allowed these people to come into my life. And so, you know, in the end, um, like, for me, for instance, uh, that record El Sonido probably might be my favorite record of my whole canon. Isn't that funny? And the reason it was, was because... I stumbled into this world where all of these new value systems and all of these new things were, it was like my synapses were just on fire. And I was so excited. And every song felt like the best song ever. And nothing really mattered. Um, And when I read interviews with um, Ray Davies of the Kinks or Neil Young is a great example of somebody that Mm -hmm. goes far afield often and has hits along the way and some misses. Um, it's that same thing. It sounds like I was trying to do the same thing that these other folks had done successfully, which is that you just never know. And it's the uncovering of the possibility 
once you put the record out, people like it, they don't like it, it's a hit, you're, I mean, honestly, at a certain point, that becomes uh, a mirage. And like, the dinners are a bit better, the girls are a bit prettier, the venues are bigger. But in the end, what does all that stuff mean? It's like the discovery, the moment when you're making the record, that's the shit. You're in there and you're like, oh my God, this is the best record ever. Is it? Probably not. <laughs> but there's a moment where you're like, yes, and that feels so good. That's what I'm looking for. And that's oh. the thing. You know, I've just done too many songs now and, and I don't, I never know what people are going to think until it's in the can. Well, the, the, uh, I, it, the true artist, I think, comes through in that. Uh, what? What? It, there's a live recording of Jason Isbell, and he's like, "Well, we got our new album. We've been playing that old stuff a long time. We're excited to have some new material. We love it. Pitchfork seems to hate it. That feels about right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know. And well, Jason's got a, he's got a really healthy disposition, which probably comes partially from sobriety. I'm sure if he were drunk you'd have more of a ryan adams kind of uh take on the uh the <laughs> <Right>. criticism <laughs> right <laughs> you know he's a but you know i think a lot of that is maturity i mean he jason got to be in an incubator with other songwriters around yeah. him and kind of take that collateral damage um with some help and so when he went off to make his own career he kind of had a head start because he was kind of like you know patterson was even though there were three guys him him and cooley and patterson Patterson was the the front guy, you know what I mean, at that yeah. point. And yeah. I think that, that Jason really benefited from that. So when he came out, he kind of knew a couple of the tricks of how the, the bullshit illusions that a lot of people get lost in, you know, and I think that's Probably part so. of why he's been so successful. He's a great songwriter. I don't want to diminish his, his, his crap. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, something you'd said before, I, I read or saw an interview with you, and I think you would talk about being in a guitar pole with people like Guy Clark. And and you would talk oh, yeah. about yeah. you talked about <laughs> kind of the joy of getting to sing a song of yours uh that you felt was truly representative. It was your song. You weren't mm -hmm. trying to write a Guy Clark song. You weren't trying to write a somebody else song. You wrote your song. Um and you're sitting there with some pretty immortal songwriters. That had to be that had to be really rewarding. But that might have been a turn from being a guitar slinger, right? You're writing a song. Well, what I, I think the reason I started telling that story is I think a lot of people didn't understand my evolution where I kind of put the guitar a little bit on the back, on the pedestal or mm -hmm. on the back, back, whatever that, that, that analogy is. Um, and that happened because I was playing guitar with Joe Ely and Joe loves a great guitar player. I mean, he's, I mean, I was in a long line of great guitar players before me, Jesse, um, David, yeah, you know, all these guys, yeah, Grissom and Jesse Taylor and, um, you know, but their, but their currency was personal truth. And, uh, I remember, you know, being 20 years old playing with Joe Ely and, you know, feeling a lot of positive, you know, feedback from being a, a guitar player. But when you'd sit around in a circle, it was really like, okay, what do you have to say? You know, and it was like, and I remember I, literally that that story that you're re uh, referencing is for years, or not for years, but for quite a while, I would just play a cover that to me uh, would show that I had discerning taste. So I would do a dark end of the street, you know, Dan Penn, Spooner Oldham song, or I would do, um, you know, something like that. And I was like, no fucking way am I going to play a tune of mine in front of these people? <laughs> and then it, after a while, it, I realized, and this is a really important, I think this is one of, I'm speaking of teaching, one of the most important things that you can tell somebody. You got one thing. You've got one thing. And I mean, yes, you can become better at writing hooks. Your wordplay can become better. You can use different tenses. You can, you know, we all go through all that stuff. But the only thing that you really have is what you think. That's it. And um, that's what Joe Ely, Guy Clark, Lucinda, Greg Brown, Greg Trooper, I'm trying to think of all the guys that we played with around that time. I mean, I was hanging with the heaviest, to me, the heaviest songwriters of all of around at that moment. And it didn't matter if they thought my song was 
uh, well, it did matter if it was good. They had different um, judgments on it. Basically, as long as I was being honest, they could see through it. If if you were trying to be someone like I was trying to pretend like I was a cowboy and write some bullshit, they would have hated it. But when I when I sang right. Blue Sky, which is the song I always talk about, when I sang Blue Sky for them, which was about my mom, and they knew my mom. My mom died when I was on tour with Joe Ely. Everybody knew that that was true. And everybody knew that that song was honest. And if you're speaking your truth, nobody can take that away from you. Yeah, that's, I think, at the end of the day, um, with all of this stuff, there's the one's obligation to be honest. Um, and I think it was a thing that you'd said um, that I ran across as a function of uh, studying through this thing. There, you know, you'd said it, you can't you can't tell your story wearing a disguise. You know, uh, unless you're David I, Bowie. I think, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah. It's, that's a different type of. It's a different. Yeah. But it's it, those are stories of characters, and and yes. and you know that's that's full validity as well. Uh, but I think that. You, Sometimes I feel like the that visceral response to uh, like the the listening public or the drinking public's uh, visceral response to a thing is the is a response to the sort of the the naked honesty of a thing, whether it's whether it's yeah. good or bad. Uh, there's a there's an authenticity behind it. I think that people are are craving and starved for. But we but we can tell, and this is the thing. Like you know you know when you're hanging out with the dog. And and you're you're like you ask the person, hey, does does it does does your dog bite, right? <laughs> it's, not, it's not my dog. Um, no, it's but not and, my dog, yeah. that is not my dog. Yeah, but if if you if you actually look at if That's you crazy. really take a second to look at the dog, you know if the dog's going to bite you. You know if the dog's going to bite. You can tell. You there's we are so we've so desensitized ourselves from the obvious things. Like you know you know how like. Lately, we've been talking about the micro um, movements of our muscles that tell someone's lying or telling the truth. We all see that shit. And so when somebody's telling you the truth <laughs> right. and somebody else is hustling you, the audience can tell for the most part. I mean, like we could go far afield on this. And I, I have some crackpot theories I'm not even going to bore you guys with tonight. But, <laughs> but I mean, the audience can really tell. They really can tell when you're telling the truth. And one of the things, as an example, um, I always laugh about, because if left to my own devices, I have two kind of writing modes that naturally emanate from me. One is kind of this very folky voice that I've had since my first song. And the other is this kind of almost like this new wave kind of thing. It doesn't make any sense at all, but it's true. It's just something that comes out. It's how I hear music. And for a long time, you know, like in El Sonido is a perfect example that's a beautifully crafted record. I love that record. It's, like I said, one of my favorite records. What I've realized is that when I open up my heart, one of my, probably my superpower is my um, sensitivity and my vulnerability. That's what makes people love me. And that's the reason why when I was a kid and there were a million other guitar players and probably many of them were better than me. I don't I don't know. The re that's the reason why I was able to get some traction. So I've kind of come to peace with the fact that I personally love complex wordplay. I'm a I'm a I'm a reader. I'm I love songs that are like nuanced and have little tricks and things in them and I like artists like that. But I also understand that what people are looking for in me because we're all looking for a buoy in the stormy seas of living. We're all looking for something that makes it okay. And and I deliver a small little sliver of that within a certain segment. And when I have a song like Today, or I have a song like Blue Sky, or I have a song, um, a cover tune, or something where there's just this emotion, that's my superpower. And um, I've seen it now. I can look at other artists, um, you know, with like Jason Isbell as an example. It's his, um, it's his kind of, there's a, different from me, but kind of there's a, there's a sensitivity and there's like a, there's a mm -hmm. gentility in the way he delivers things that's different from Patterson, for instance, or... A Jimmy Buffett. There's a there's a there's the brilliant clown that you think isn't so smart. You know, there's a delivery, and that's and the people look to him are Randy Newman, sardonic but true. He has a heart, but he's going to pretend he's an asshole. I mean, we all have these little inroads into this common place that is the fact that we all want to see and be seen. It's this. It's 
it's a really mathematical equation. And part of getting older, speaking of demographics, is coming to peace with that and realizing that, um, mm-hmm. you know, like I will write these songs that I don't need everyone to love my favorite song that I've ever written. And if it happens to be a song that elevates you or a song that makes you feel something, I'm really, really grateful that I wrote it. Oh, man. That's beautiful. That's, a, that's an, yeah, really, it truly is. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you, you brought it first full circle like that. Cause that's really, that's really what we're trying to arrive at is, is the connectivity, the, the, uh, the, the, the honest connectivity, the, uh, the communication of vulnerability and the universality of that. Uh, and because we happen to be, uh, in this demographic that has seen a bit of life, I, I don't know. I mean, it sounds like you know you, uh, Kurt. I know you're in the in the same boat, and and you know it sounds like you are too. There's just there's a certain there's a certain piece in. It's not about not giving a shit anymore. It's more about this the cycle the 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 wheel has gone around enough times that you see the macro cycles of things and you're able to better discern what really matters. Yeah, and yeah. you can you can focus on the stuff that matters, you know, most to you, that resonates the most for you because you've you've reached a point of being at peace with what and who that is. I think I think it's fantastic. Well, it's I mean, it's and you can look at my career and it's it's pretty much defined the you know, I mean, I've done a million times more than I ever could have imagined. You know, and so what would my goals be at this point? I mean, what, you know, I've played in front of gigantic crowds. I mean, and, you know, and it's right. funny. I have friends. I have friends that play like 10, 12,000 people a night. And you know what? You know, it's funny. It depends on the person. But the people that are really in the game still that are looking at it through the, uh, I don't know if you guys know the Magister Ludi, Herman Hess book, the Glass Bead Game, the guys that look at the world through those lens, those lenses they're never satisfied. They will never be satisfied. They might be playing a show where you guys would go to and be like, oh my God, this is the luckiest dude or girl in the world. They're not satisfied yeah. because there's somebody that's just a little bit further along than they are. <laughs> and sure. that is, that is the con- that carrot will drive you. That's part of growing older is that my goal is at this point, I'm trying to impress myself. I'm trying to impress kind of my, like if I can get my friends to laugh or to see something that, they haven't seen um and then the other things that i really love are those moments like i i so when the pandemic hit and it was kind of like not playing for a long time um you know it was a really interesting thing i was like i was home for a while there's a lot about touring that i hate i hate being away from my family um i don't like traveling all the time i constantly feel kind of crappy i'm tired i'm worn out it's hard to like you know get it together to give a great show every night. But man, when you're on stage and when you're like vibing with the band, it's like the first time I ever played. It has never, it will never get old. And I, 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 I imagine that like Willie feels the same way um, that anybody that really loves to play. Like when you really sink in with your, with your band and you're playing and the audience is feeling it, it's the greatest feeling in the world. And that's the thing that drives me along this road of this financially unstable way of life, and um, no, no, like you know, like no, no real healthcare system. No, <laughs> right, yeah. um, everything's uncertain. Um, pretty much, you could make money doing anything else in a better way than music. <laughs> but it's just so. And I really think anybody that truly loves it, and I think most of us do. I think some people have become a bit cynical. But there's just nothing like it. And I mean, you guys know, you know, you come, you go to a show and you can just feel the joy off yeah. the stage and then it goes into the crowd and then it goes back to the band. And then all of a sudden you're in this thing where it's this back and forth energy thing and the room has just been so elevated. And I don't know. I mean, my wife gets pissed off at me when I say this because we've had a beautiful life. We have two beautiful sons, 21 and 18. But I think my favorite thing in the whole world is standing up on stage playing music, honestly. Well, you know, the other night I saw Steve Earle here in town. 
and uh, <laughs> I got he gets about halfway. Story about that. Yeah. He he gets about halfway through, and I've seen him a lot, and uh-huh. he doesn't always seem super happy to be up there. Um, but uh, yeah. but I, I love him, and I he's such a great songwriter. But he gets to the middle of the th- well. He was positively effusive all night. Is my point of that? Not to say yeah, anything negative six, about yeah. it. He was he was smiling. He was effusive. Yeah. And he plays with those fascinating uh, couple, the Mastersons now, you know, for several years. Well, anyway, he gets to the middle of the thing and he's done with the song and he goes, looks like everybody's having a good time. I'm sure all you guys needed it. A lot of you told me that. He goes, I'm telling you, we needed this more. And so I cannot imagine for you, uh, for anybody, because I need it. I got a pile of tickets now, you know, to go (laughs) see stuff. Yeah, all my friends do too. Because I need it. But I cannot imagine, um, you, you know, being sidelined like that. I got to tell you a really funny story that's going to maybe blow your mind. Um, so <laughs> okay. when I, you know, so I live up here. Um, when I'm in Austin, I stay with my friend who basically gives me a room to stay in. She's my registered agent, so my corporation. It's a Texas Ian Moore Productions, a Texas corporation. So she's a lawyer. She's a friend to a lot of musicians. I've known her forever. She's like a sister to me. I'm in Austin when the pandemic hits. My wife, being up here, is freaking out. She's like, you got to come home. I'm like, honey, I got gigs in Oklahoma next week. We're going to keep going. <laughs> it's fine. There's fine down here. <clears throat> uh, this, is, this is over the weekend. I have, I have all these plans, and things are happening and escalating really quickly. And this this will be a, again one of those memories that we'll laugh about till till I'm not on this planet anymore. Um, so that I play Saturday night. I come home Sunday. I'm at Michelle's house. I go out that night with my friend Bonnie, and we go see Chuck Prophet. And Chuck Prophet's band is nice. my band when I play in the Bay Area. As a matter of fact, when I play in September and October, that rhythm section will be my rhythm section. And so I go out to see him. And I remember Bonnie and I are both kind of feeling kind of rebellious because a lot of people aren't going out. South by Southwest has been canceled. Bonnie at the end of the night says, don't tell my sister that we went out because she's going to kill me. Well, Bonnie's sister is staying with me at the same house that I'm staying. And her name is Eleanor. And her husband, Chris, oh. they are the Mastersons. Yeah. So the next yeah. morning, oh, nice. we wake up. Um, I don't tell them anything about the show because because we were at the show and they're freaked out and they already know like they're they live in L.A. at this point. And so we all had coffee and we're having coffee. And at to this point, I'm planning on playing the next weekend. I'm, I'm because my guys need the money. I need the money. We're just going to do it. We're going to make because this is what you do when you're a band. You don't if there's a hurricane, you're like you look at the hurricane, you go, I think we can get in over here. You know, or if there's a riot, it's like, if there's a riot, it was like, that was four days ago. It should be fine. I mean, literally, that's what it is to be in a band. You're used to driving through and going on against inclement conditions. Um, So it was that morning, we're having a cup of coffee, and Chris and Eleanor are sitting there at the table with me. I'm not telling them about the Chuck Prophet show the night before. And they're like, yeah, we're bailing on the whole Steve tour. We're going home. And I called my wife and I booked my ticket to come home. Oh, wow. That this, I had finished my cup of coffee, went back in my bedroom, booked my ticket to come home, and then was home for 15 months and didn't play with another human being until a week and a half ago. So it's funny, the Mastersons were literally there with me, five feet away from me, when we made the decision. and I realized the, uh, and it was interesting because I got home and I lost so much money. I had the biggest summer of my life coming up that year. I had all these opportunities that were the huge, great opportunity. I was so excited. And I remember just this feeling of, because I'm so used to fighting for what I fight for and I let go of everything. And I woke up the next morning, Monday morning, after our uh, Tuesday morning, after flying home, I sat at my computer here in the studio and I sent out an email and I offered up guitar lessons because at that point to the, I was like, I have, I don't know how I'm going to survive. 
and I was terrified. And and basically, I am just now starting to see the end of that thing that I've been in for this last 15 months. And I actually called mm. Chris uh, a couple of weeks ago and was just, we were laughing about like the fact that we shared that moment when everything stopped. Wow. You know, yeah. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> wow. Um, well, they're, they're amazing to watch on stage and, 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 uh, they seem like a fascinating couple. And, uh, in this household, they're my great. wife and I, we've got a goal to stay in their Airbnb in Terralingua, man. I want oh, yeah. to go stay in yeah. Terralingua, Texas. Um, yep. I don't know, have a beer with Butch Hancock. I don't know what we're going to do down there, but you can find um, him. But... Be... <laughs> yeah, no, I, I met him at, I forget the grocery store. He, he seemed accessible. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Cool. We, uh, we've, we've probably taken up enough of your evening. We're, we're far out past where, where we usually are. And this has been we'll fantastic. We'll a two-parter with Ian. This is awesome. Yeah. No kidding. This <laughs> well, is super uh, fun talking to you. Been... And, and I will say too, that, um, I want to just tell you guys before we go, um, so where we live, it's kind of cool. Well, it's, it, this is what's cool about living far from where you're from. Um, uh, Vashon is a huge uh, cidery uh, um, oh. community. Wow. And I have a couple of friends that are, are really, really, I mean, there's two cideries on Vashon that are two of the best in the world. Um, and my friend that lives probably about a quarter mile from me, literally right around the corner, um, they do a lot of parries and they do the whiskey cast uh, parry. And um, as oh, well as great. there's another, and I'm forgetting the, the name, I always forget the name of the spirit that Jim does. That's almost, it's like a brandy, but it's got, it's a French, it's a French thing. It's obscure. I always forget the name. And it, this kind oh, of- Oh, rem- uh, Calvados, I believe yeah, is what yeah, you're- Yeah, yep, yep. Is it Calvados? Yep, it's oh, Calvados. Okay, nice. Literally killed me one night. I did a benefit with him. I was I was playing a show and I had two of them because I, I thought they were like ciders. I'm like, no big deal. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Definitely. all of a sudden, I look at my wife, and we're like a quarter mile from my house. I'm the dude that drives every drunk person home, and I looked at her. And I'm like, "Honey, you gotta drive." And she's like, "You had two drinks." I'm like, "Yeah, but they were they were secret drinks. I don't know what happened." But the the <laughs> I really appreciate you uh, bringing out this bottle because it reminds me oh, of yeah. Calvados. It reminds me kind of of that. What it's kind it of what that does. tastes like. Yeah, there is a there are some underpinnings of a kind of a, a baked apple uh, thing that that run through nectar, and I hadn't really thought of it as being um, Calvadosi uh, until you'd mentioned that again. Calvados tends to end up in in uh, French oak as well, so you've got this juxtaposition of baked fruit and and grippy French kind oak tannins. Yeah, wow! I'm glad I I'm glad we sent you that one. That's, yeah, no, it's great. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, no, and I had a wow, great time. I really cool. thank thank you so much for uh, good luck on the uh, thank you on the podcast, and uh, let me know let me know how I can help. I'll drop in your note as soon as this one uh, as soon as this one gets posted on uh, Spotify and the other podcast mediums, uh, and then yeah, have a listen. I, I hope you dig it. Um, uh, we both uh, obviously appreciate this very much, and that your birthday shows. Uh, I hope they go off without a hitch, and that you have looking, an absolute blast. Down. Yeah, uh, getting back to it. And it looks cool. like if we made our way to Oklahoma City, we could come see you in September. Oh yeah, is that yeah. true? Yeah, you yeah, know, and, and, like and we'll, see, we'll see. I think that's a road trip. That'd be a, that'd Could be a fun show. Happen. That's that's a pretty Oklahoma is kind of like a second home to me. I was just telling my friends last night, like it's funny. I played there be, being a Texan. I played there so many times. You know, Okies are very um, they're very about Oklahoma, just because probably because they're next to Texas, and they tolerate me like they actually really like me like it's funny that <laughs> despite the fact that i i hate ou and i'm a ut longhorn you know they're they're sure they they love me it's uh you know i am planning uh so where do you guys live are you omaha o- omaha yeah yes yeah omaha i'm you know you know obviously well i don't know i'm you know my first when i first came out before I had records or anything, the first town that I was ever like really big in was Lincoln, outside of Texas. Oh, very cool! And you so I used to, oh a billion a billion times, and like mm-hmm. before 
before cool. anyone knew who I was, I we got really big there. And I remember like I have a I'm I've been trying to kind of I mean, this is the funny thing about life. It's like a long way for me to go. Like when we play the zoo bar, it's like, you know, I could see that if I were to really invest some time in getting up to Nebraska, I could get my following up pretty quick. But it's so far <laughs> So right. I'm ho- right. I'm hoping I'm hoping to get up like um we'll see what this year looks like like when I start playing again I've got a bunch of uh I'm going up into Kansas I'm doing a bunch of West Coast stuff see how I feel I'm going to see what it feels like if it feels good and mm-hmm. kind of exciting you, you know we'll kind of build upon it Do you remember Magic right. Slim? It was Magic Slim and the Teardrops Magic Slim oh, of was course. Chicago blues of player course, right? Yeah. Okay yeah. so I'm living in Austin and a good friend of mine Chris Swindell, we're working together. He's a great guitar player. We're at work. And I go, hey, I just found out there's a show tonight. And um, maybe it was at the Cactus or something. And this guy, Magic Slim, you got to go. He's like, I've never heard of him. I go, dude, you've got to go see this guy. This guy will hold one note through five bars, and it will be the coolest thing you've ever heard in your life. He's like, I don't know if I can make it. Then he decides to make it. We're sitting there. We got a couple of beers. We're waiting for the show to start. My friend Chris goes, I think I probably made the right decision. I go, why? He goes, look over there. The table right next to us, one dude, Billy Gibbons, got a lone star in front of him, waiting for the show just like we are. (laughs) That's great. That's That's fantastic. Cool. Well, thanks, you guys. yeah, this was a blast, and we you know, we can't thank you enough uh, uh, yeah. for your generosity with your time and and uh, and amazing content. We're we're thrilled. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks, good luck. Man. Thanks I'll very talk much. To you soon. Take care, Kurt. Bye. Right on. See ya. Thanks a lot. Bye.